The air is as sticky as the candy in your hands that you dump into various ghosts, princesses, and superheroes' pillowcases. Then you see her. You've seen one or two witches tonight, but there's something different about this one. She smiles at you, and it gives you a strange feeling on the back of your neck. Before you can remember where you've seen her face before, she says the key phrase, and you dump yet another handful of slightly melted candy into her bag. She turns away with a thanks, and right out of the edge of the shadows, she calls out, See you at church on Sunday. Hello, and welcome to the Blue Ceiling Porch Podcast. My name is Caitlin, and this week's episode is going to be about witches. More specifically, the Bell Witch of East Tennessee. Now, it's common knowledge that towns of a certain size have a witch, if only to eat misbehaving children and the occasional puppy that wanders into her yard. Witches use those bones to cast spells and curses all over the town. Now, that quote is from Big Fish, one of the most southern movies if I've ever seen one. It actually kind of embodies this entire podcast, to be honest. I definitely recommend going and seeing it. It was produced by Tim Burton. It came out a few years ago. But today's episode is going to focus on witches in the South, especially the Bell Witch hauntings. It seems that most witches, like the ones that we tend to think about, the ones with the broomsticks and everything else, or if you have read The Crucible or stuff like that, any witches that we think about, like with the Salem witch trials, seem to occur in the Northeast United States. For whatever reason, any witches in the South are hidden. And it seems to be secondhand accounts opposed to how we have recordings and, you know, a lot of paperwork documenting the witches in the Northeast United States. We had witch hunters who proclaimed that they were finding witches and their own documented journals and stuff like that. But in the South, it's secondhand accounts from the slaves. One would suggest maybe that it was their way of getting to sneak away at night and then having an explanation of why the horses were so tired in the morning. It's almost impossible to track which accounts seem to pop up first, but you only have a few, but it's hard to kind of track which ones come up first. The Bell Witch of Tennessee seems to be the most popular and substantiated or continued legend. It has been around since 1886, and apparently it wasn't even occurring in 1886. It had occurred almost 75 years before that. But before I get into that, there is a very interesting account of witches in Virginia from the Journal of American Folklore that was published in 1909. This was published after the Bell Witch Haunting, like I said before, but it's just very interesting what the Virginian account has to say, and that's why I want to focus on it for a little bit. Now, it does have something in common with the Bell Witch Haunting. There are uh, mention of shape-shifting and such like that, but that's something that's carried on in all witch stories, even all the way back to the old country or Europe. Now, what's really fun about this Virginian description, 
Um, he has noted in his journal, the, the writer has, he notes the difference between female witches and male witches. Now, brace yourself. This is exciting stuff right here. Females. Now, this is just choice. The breasts of a female witch are situated under her arms and the skin on her neck resembles a collar. Now, male witches aren't as interesting as female witches, I'm afraid. They just hate to look one in the face, so they have an issue with eye contact. Now, again, these are all second-hand accounts from slaves in the area. The journal writer himself apparently did not get a chance to meet any of these witches. But this common thread of shape-shifting is interesting. The common animals seem to be buzzards or doe or mixtures of creatures, which I'm going to use to lead up into our most famous haunting, the Bell Winch Haunting of East Tennessee. So, we were talking about shape-shifting. It's interesting the animals that witches seem to choose for shape-shifting, but our story begins with shape-shifting. Now, I'm going to sum up the story fairly quickly. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail just because the Bell Witch hauntings have been covered in books, magazines, historical accounts, movie shows, what whatever. It's just so much. So I'm just going to sum it up as quickly as I can. So John Bell Sr., he bought some land in East Tennessee, which is now known as Adams, Tennessee. He had a neighbor named Kate. She was not happy that he bought the land, and about 13 years after him and his family had settled there, she passed away. The day she passed away, he apparently saw a creature that had the body of a dog and the head of a rabbit. And that's when all of his troubles began. He and his family were haunted by Kate, who, unlike the title would suggest, she was not there physically or even had a physical appearance. She was more like a poltergeist. She terrorized them by making turning the cows milk. She would pull covers off of beds. She would poke them. At one instance, she apparently caused John Bell Sr. to choke on a stick. And she ter for some reason, John Bell Sr. and Betsy, the daughter, seemed to be her focus of her anger. She had told them quite clearly, she talked to them a lot, but she had told them quite clearly she was not going to leave them alone until John Bell Sr. was dead and Betsy had broken off her engagement to John Gardner. So, to get into the more details now, we have a bunch of historical accounts of the Bell Witch Haunting, which is surprising considering how these things tend to go. You maybe have one or two newspaper accounts, but we have reputable, quote-unquote, reputable historical sources that argue with each other. Some would say that Betsy was the one causing everything to happen, uh, which would make sense if she had no control over her engagement, but it was quite clear that she did. So I agree with the his other historical sources that seem to disagree with that, with this presumption that it was all Betsy's fault. Now, she grew such a crowd, Kate did, the witch, and she was apparently very powerful because she also appeared in Alabama uh, around the same time period. And remember, her two purposes for haunting was to kill John Bell Sr. and to cause Kate to break off her engagement. Well, 
In 19, excuse me, not 19, in 1820, John Bell Sr. finally passed away, and Betsy and John Gardner were in the house when it happened, and they said that a bottle fell from the shelf, and Kate claimed that was the poison she used to kill John Bell Sr. In a year or two, I want to say within six months, according to my notes, she, Betsy, had broke her engagement with John Gardner, and after that, Kate was gone for a good long time, apparently. She didn't show up again until seven years later in 1828. She appeared at the farm again, John Bell Sr.'s farm, to John Bell Jr., I'm going to assume, is the one that's taking account of this. And according to the legend, she spoke of the past, the present, and the future, and that she would appear again in 107 years. That would have been 1935. According to the locals in Adams, Tennessee, she didn't show up again. A little disappointing if you ask me. If she's powerful enough to be in two states at the same time and to cause a man to die, you think she would have at least made her appointments, right? Alright, so before I wrap this episode up, I want to just talk about this little tale within the tale, um, a story of what happened at the Bell Witch property. Now, the three oldest sons... John Bell Jr., Drury Bell, and Jesse Bell had served under General Jackson in the Battle of New Orleans. This was in 1819, a year before uh, John Bell Sr. passed away. And their stories of the witch back home were so intriguing that General Jackson decided he must visit the town himself or visit the farm himself. Whenever he got there, right as they were about to get onto the property... He had been proclaiming, apparently, or some of the men had, that there was no such thing as poltergeist or witches, that this couldn't have happened, and the wagon would not move any closer. And according to the story, Jackson proclaimed, by the eternal boys, that must be the Bell Witch. Then Kate acknowledged them and told them they were allowed to come onto the property. <laughs> and uh, have dinner. So they had dinner with John Bell Sr., talked about all the other topics that I guess you talk about while they were waiting for the ghost to show up. And one of his men claimed to be a witch tamer, and he pulled out a pistol proclaiming it had a silver bullet that would kill any evil spirit that it was came in contact with. He went on to say that the reason nothing had happened to them because whatever was disturbing the bells was scared of a silver bullet. Now, if you've ever seen a horror movie, you know this is not a good idea. You do not tempt ghosts or anything of that nature, especially if they've been violent before, which I think is pretty stupid if you think about it, since he was, she was able to keep them from pulling the wagon onto the property. So whenever he said this, immediately his body began jerking in different directions and he was screaming that he was being struck with pins and beaten and he got kicked, apparently, from his, on the butt, from an invisible foot, straight out the front door. And then angry, Kate said that there was another fraud in the party and she would torment him the next re- the next evening. So apparently our witch tamer was a fraud and she knew it. Makes you wonder if there had been a legitimate witch tamer what she would have done then. So according to the story, it all ends with Jackson's men being terrified and begging to leave the farm and General Jackson saying that they wanted to, he wanted to stay there and be able to find out who the other fraud was. 
But what happened next is apparently unclear because they were spotted in the nearby town of Springfield the next morning en route to Nashville. So, as exciting as that story was, it didn't end as exciting as it began. Who knows? So that wraps up our episode for today. The Bell Witch Haunting and the minor reports from the American Folklore Journal of 1909. That's all we have for this for witches in the South, which is kind of interesting if you think about it. It means that maybe they just were never found. The reason why we don't have any horrific stories of their executions are because they're still with us. They might even be next door. And Maybe they go to church with you every Sunday morning. Thank you for listening to the Blue Ceiling Porch, a Southern Legends podcast. This podcast was written and produced by Caitlin Warren. All music and sound effects were found on freemusic.org. Various sources can be found on the Blue Ceiling Porch podcast.tumblr.com. If you have any questions or would just like to drop me a line, feel free to visit there and tell me any upcoming stories you'd like to see appear on the podcast. Thank you again, and have a good night.